Welcome to the Impact Room, brought to you by Philanthropy Age and me, Maisa Jalbou. Step inside to hear stories of success, failure, and impact from people dedicated to solving global development challenges. This is a space to connect people and ideas that make a real difference to our world. In an age of abundance, we don't need to have nearly a billion people living in energy poverty, 800 million people hungry every night, and girls still experiencing deep vulnerability and discrimination. My guest on this episode of The Impact Room is Dr. Rajiv Shah, the president of one of the world's oldest and largest philanthropies. Dr. Raj joined the Rockefeller Foundation after six years at the helm of the U.S. Foreign Aid Agency, USAID, leading it during the response to the Haiti earthquake and the West African Ebola pandemic. The founder of Latitude Capital, a private equity firm focused on power and infrastructure projects in Africa and Asia, he has also worked at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where he created the International Financing Facility for Immunization, and he has served as a Distinguished Fellow in Residence at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Recently, Dr. Raj published his book, Big Bets, How Large-Scale Change Really Happens, a selection of stories designed to inspire nonprofit leaders to reimagine how they approach social impact. Welcome to the Impact Room, Dr. Raj. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're recording this interview just before the UE is due to host COP28. The Rockefeller Foundation has strongly pivoted to place the climate crisis front and center. And you've been very public about your decision to divest from fossil fuels. Can you talk us through that evolution in strategy? Yes. Well, you know, we have decided to focus on climate change going forward because for more than 110 years, our mission has been squarely about protecting vulnerable communities across the globe uh, and helping them aspire to have better lives and livelihoods. And we believe the climate crisis is the single greatest threat facing humanity and the single greatest uh, likely outcome to dramatically increase the number of people on earth who are deeply, deeply vulnerable to hunger, to disease, to poverty, and to other forms of conflict and strife. And so we made a decision that we would go all in to fight the climate crisis and in particular support vulnerable communities. As part of that commitment, in addition to grant programs and projects that our foundation is able to support, and some of our policy and advocacy work that we're able to do with nations around the world, we thought we should be very committed to walking the talk. And we made a commitment to divest of fossil fuels in our endowment, and we pursued that uh, systematically and have now achieved that outcome. And just um, looking back at this year's uh, New York Climate Week, the foundation announced a $1 billion U.S. dollar commitment to advance the global climate transition. Maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about that new strategy. Absolutely. You know, as we look around the planet, we're, we're actually quite optimistic and we think it's realistic to be optimistic about the future. And the reason is the climate transition is the largest technological, societal and economic transition happening since the Industrial Revolution. And that means that all this new technology, a new focus on supporting vulnerable communities, and a new commitment to protecting our planet politically creates opportunities to achieve our goals that we're 
unforeseen and unavailable um, even a few years ago. So in that context, we made our big bet, which is a commitment to put a billion dollars of program resources into collaborations and partnerships in the areas of energy, food, health, and financial systems to create the changes possible to keep 1.5 degrees alive as a global temperature target and in the process to support the two to three billion people on earth who would be most vulnerable to climate transitions in the future. You've said, and I quote, humanity does not have to choose between addressing climate change and advancing human opportunity. We simply have to work in new ways and at a bigger scale with new people and in new places. Can we unpack that a little bit, please? And what does this really mean in practical terms? Well, so if you look at in 2015, there were two major global agreements. There was, of course, the Paris Accords that laid out a plan for uh, the planet to maintain 1.5 degrees temperature warming as a target. And uh, there was the adoption by every nation on Earth of the Sustainable Development Goals that made the very simple point that we should have quantitative focused goals in expanding the reach of dignity and opportunity to every person on Earth because in an age of abundance, we don't need to have nearly a billion people living in energy poverty, 800 million people hungry every night, and girls still experiencing deep vulnerability and discrimination around the planet. And so both of those goals uh, are important to achieve. And we actually believe that the technologies that will enable the climate transition can dramatically accelerate the goals that were set as sustainable development goals. Uh, and our most profound example is that idea that renewable energy technology in particular can finally reach the billion or so people that live effectively in the dark and give them a chance to participate in a modern, growing global economy. You're coming to the UAE for COP28. What are you hoping to get out of it? Well, the COP is such an extraordinarily important meeting for our planet and all of its people. You know, it's the only global political meeting that brings leaders together to make concrete agreements and to negotiate the path forward on climate transition for the entire planet. And COP28 is happening in Dubai at a time when, in fact, uh, you look at wealthy nations around the world, the United States, European nations, China, some in the Middle East, are making big, big investments to green their own domestic economies. But more than 80 developing and emerging countries around the world are effectively still highly dependent on development pathways that require fossil fuels at scale. And in fact, there's going to be 112 gigawatts of new coal-fired production of power being brought online on a global basis on the current trajectory. So the COP is the place to change that outcome. And what I hope to see are real negotiations that accelerate the phase out and phase down of fossil fuels. I hope to see absolute serious financing solutions being provided to emerging and developing economies to allow them to access the renewable energy technology frontier that is so defining the global transition uh, in terms of climate in wealthy economies, but is effectively not nearly as available in developing and emerging economies. And I hope to see a renewed 
political and public-private set of collaborations that keep 1.5 degrees alive. And can you give us a bit of a steer on what those commitments might look like? Uh, Well, you know, at the end of the day, it's not hard to understand, you know, what has to happen. Virtually every economist and every economic analysis has said you need between two and four trillion dollars a year of investment in the climate transition in developing and emerging economies if we are to keep 1.5 degrees alive. And today... Uh, we're getting nowhere near that level of investment. By the way, that level is roughly 2 to 4% of global GDP on an annualized basis. So while it's a lot of real dollars, it's not a very high percentage of total economic activity. The challenge is we live in polarizing times, and wealthier nations have been far more frugal in their provision of aid, assistance, and public-private investment partnerships to accelerate the transition in emerging economies. And that's happening at a time when capital is actually uh, in flight towards uh, safer, larger economies like the United States, instead of seeking deployment in emerging economies. So what I hope to see are real concessional financial commitments from uh, the UAE, from other sovereign uh, wealth communities and and nations that have benefited from the fossil fuel uh, price run up in recent years. And I hope to see real commitments to accountable expenditure in developing and emerging economies so we can measure uh, progress in quantitative and transparent terms. And can we expect that there will be, alongside those commitments of governments, commitments also by foundations like the Rockefeller Foundation? Yes. Well, as I noted, we've already made the billion-dollar pledge Uh, which is our big bet to make sure that the climate transition itself is accessible to uh, low-income communities around the world. Uh, To to achieve that, we're launching a series of public-private partnerships because we believe in order to make big bets real, you need collaboration across the public and private sector, and that's even more true for climate. So you'll see announcements from us in the areas of health, energy, food, and financial instruments uh, that are designed to drive more capital into emerging economies and developing economies to ensure everyone benefits from an accelerated climate transition. But I would caution, you know, philanthropy can do a lot in uh, taking risks, in in building alliances and partnerships, and in insisting on measuring and making transparent the achievement of results. But ultimately, large-scale public finance will be necessary to motivate enough private capital to get in the game to meet that two to four trillion dollar financing gap that I mentioned earlier. Another big priority is helping to uh, launch some efforts and partnerships, public and private around health and infectious disease surveillance and heat management, the the crises of the future uh, where climate intersects with health are both known uh, and deeply underinvested in. And so so we'll be engaging in some partnerships and collaborations in that space. And then in the food space, we, you know, we, we have an opportunity to bring global food companies together and commit to a massive transformation of the supply chain of how we produce and distribute food. Today's global food system is both destroying our environment and making most people quite sick. And uh, it's actually an entirely intelligent and reasonable thing to do 
to have uh, much more climate smart agriculture in our supply chain and much more of a nutrition focus to the food we produce, consume, and then uh, defines our health outcomes over time. So those are some of the types of conversations I'll be in with world leaders, heads of state, uh, and citizen activists who are present at this year's COP. If, if we can switch now to your experience, um, you have had a very illustrious career. And uh, just as I mentioned earlier, you have written a book that's called Big Bets. Um, and we've already discussed some of the big bets that the Rockefeller Foundation is taking. But can we delve into this a bit more? You clearly believe that big problems require big bets. And you're an optimist and you don't necessarily believe that you have to be a billionaire or a president to make those big bets. And you've written almost a handbook based on your experience. One of the key strategies that um, I was very interested in, in uh, bringing out today to our listeners is that you advocate for kind of breaking down the problem into manageable segments in, in order to avoid getting bogged down by the enormity of the problem. Could you walk us through an example of where this approach has worked well for you in your experience? Sure. Well, look, to me, big bets are simply having bold aspirations to make social change happen at massive, massive scale. And too often we settle for incremental changes or we think doing a little bit of good is good enough and we get on with the rest of our lives and we fail to acknowledge that actually if we treated the business of making society more just, more equitable, more protected from climate threats at scale, we could actually dramatically change our future and make a much bigger difference. That's why big bets are important. But to make big bets happen, as you point out, you need three core components. The first is you have to really find those fresh, innovative solutions that can scale. And that's, uh, and that's very, very important in order to be able to succeed with any big bet. The second is you do need to build alliances, usually public-private, sometimes in American politics it's left and right. Uh, but you need to build alliances because at the end of the day, it's very hard to achieve any of these big, bold aspirations by going it alone. And the third is you have to be able to measure results with discipline and rigor, just like you would in any business, and stay focused over the long term. So, you know, one example of a big bet that I talk about in the book is our effort in 2014 to prevent Ebola, a hemorrhagic fever and an emerging pandemic in West Africa, to spread around the world. And at that time, the American Centers for Disease Control was estimating there would be 1.6 million cases on a global basis, including several hundred thousand in the United States. And President Obama made a big bet, which was to deploy U.S. troops for the first time in our history into West Africa to fight a disease. And in fact, uh, that big bet ultimately worked. We were able to reduce the number of cases uh, down pretty close to zero, but the, the total number never got anywhere near 1.6 million and topped out at around 30,000. Uh, and at least as Americans, there were only two cases in the United States and neither of which came from domestic spread or contagion. And the reason that big bet worked was, as you mentioned, we were pretty disciplined in that context of really studying which interventions will be most effective statistically at reducing contagion in West African communities. And we found that some of the things we tried early, like building these big Ebola treatment units, uh, didn't work. 
but we also found that you know developing these sort of burial teams that would help uh, remove the bodies of dead and deceased victims of this disease and place them in WHO body bags and have them removed in a respectful, thoughtful way, but with people clad in full protective equipment, uh, that that actually, that process reduced transmission by nearly 70% and led to the quick demise of the Ebola outbreak. So, you know, constantly studying what works and being very disciplined quantitatively about knowing which solutions to invest in and to take to scale is at the core of any big bet. That's really um, very good advice. And just coming back to your book again, Big Bets, you talk about your experience taking up the leadership of USAID um, in 2010 and just days before a major earthquake in Haiti, which displaced millions and triggered a major cholera outbreak. Um, that was a pivotal moment in humanitarian response globally in terms of lessons learned. How much do you think that has influenced aid policy response to disasters since that happened? Well, I think it has had a big influence because, you know, in that moment, more than 200,000 people were at risk of losing their lives, ultimately did lose lose their lives. 21 of 22 Haitian ministries had collapsed. The United Nations in the Haitian capital, Port-au-Prince, had also collapsed and as a result, and suffered many, many casualties. And as a result, the normal leadership for a humanitarian response was missing. Um, because that normal leadership was missing, President Obama asked me to lead a global effort to support the people of Haiti at their time of critical need. And we were able to relatively quickly stand up food distribution to more than 3 million people, provide enough clean water so that diarrheal disease was lower six months after the earthquake than the day before, and perform nearly 22,000 surgeries at reattaching limbs and saving lives aboard uh, USS Comfort, a, a naval hospital ship. And it showed the world that actually, if you're willing to be uh, focused and do everything necessary during a humanitarian crisis, you can actually make a significant difference. And it taught me a lesson, which was uh, during that crisis, more than half of all American families gave directly to the Haitian earthquake response. We created a text capability to do that. And that was more than the number of people that watched uh, the U.S. Super Bowl that year. And it gave me hope and confidence that when you give people a chance to do the right thing, people want to be on the side of right and they want to demonstrate their moral commitments. And it's why I'm hopeful about resolving humanitarian crises, addressing poverty around the world and ultimately fighting the climate crisis. The, the response to the Haiti crisis wasn't without its pitfalls, uh, and certainly there were many different actors. I'm wondering, at the time you were heading up a government agency, but now you're heading up a, a large philanthropic entity. Why do you think philanthropy finds it so hard to respond effectively to humanitarian disasters? Well, you know, unfortunately, a lot of philanthropy moves slowly and, and is deeply risk averse. And part of why I wrote the book Big Bets is to demonstrate that philanthropy can actually be the opposite. It can be fast moving and it can take risks that no other part of society can take in order to prove something's possible and take solutions to scale. Uh, but in my own experience, a lot of philanthropy is quite risk averse uh, and content with you know doing good as opposed to solving problems. Mm. And 
hopefully the book Big Bets is a roadmap uh, for both philanthropists and anyone uh, who wants to be part of solving big global problems on how to do so. But I do think it requires a different mindset than most traditional philanthropy uh, embodies. And, and frankly, that's why I wrote the book. Finally, Dr. Raj, given all the challenges we're facing in the world right now, are you optimistic? And if you are, what is it that gives you hope? Well, I am optimistic, and I and I actually believe that it's it's realistic to be optimistic, uh, that it's not just some naive optimism. And you know, I'll give you an example as to why. You know, for many many years, and then increasing during the COVID crisis, uh, people have lived without access to electricity and energy in extreme poverty, and almost 800 million people live in that context, pushing nearly a billion. And that's not having enough power to power one light bulb and one home appliance per person for the course of a year. And now we actually have solutions powered by solar panels, lithium ion batteries, powered by uh, artificial intelligence, uh, battery management and energy management systems that allow us to deploy energy solutions to rural communities, conflict afflicted areas, and manage them from smart meters that allow customers to pay for only what they're receiving in terms of and consuming in terms of power. Those solutions, some of which have been innovated by the Rockefeller Foundation in collaboration with private entrepreneurs around the world, are now reaching millions of consumers in these deeply uh, isolated and neglected parts of the world and parts of the global energy grid. And as a result, I'm getting inquiries from heads of state from country after country saying, can you build these solar mini grids in rural communities in Ethiopia and Zambia and Rwanda and parts of Northeast India in a way that helps make inclusive development clean and possible? And it's solutions like that and the way leaders react to those solutions that give me real hope. Today, we're building an alliance. It's called the Global Energy Alliance around those solutions to help reach the billion people who can benefit from renewable energy technology that are not currently receiving enough power to create jobs, grow businesses, help girls study and read at night. Um, and we can change the world at scale if we just put our mind to it and we remain positive in our mindset and our outlook. That's what the book Big Bets is about. I think we need big bets now more than ever, especially leading into this next round of climate negotiations. Uh, and I'm, I'm really grateful that uh, I get to be surrounded by people who are inventors and optimists of a better future. Dr. Raj, thank you very much for joining me in the Impact Room. Thank you so much, Misa. That was Dr. Raj Shah, the president of the Rockefeller Foundation, speaking to me, Maisa Jalbut, in the Impact Room, a podcast produced by Philanthropy H. Until next time.